0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STET. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardet. It's Thursday, March 24th, and today we are going to talk about the mess that is AstraZeneca and its COVID-19 vaccine.
0: Two different sets of results from the same U.S.-based clinical trial set off a raging controversy this week, sparked a fight with U.S. government scientists, and of course dominated the news cycle.
1: Thankfully, our stat colleague Helen Branswell will join us to help figure out what the hell is going on with AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine and how the controversy might affect the global vaccination effort.
2: Finally, we'll examine the man at the center of this COVID vaccine fight, AstraZeneca's swashbuckling CEO, Pascal Sorio. Our colleague Matt Herper joins us to help answer the question, how did a guy who's almost universally credited with a sweeping scientific and financial turnaround stumble into a global credibility crisis?
1: All that after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay, the Chief Revenue Officer of STAT. There have been tremendous leaps forward in recent years in digital health, but there's still a long way to go. I'm here with Chris Benko, the CEO of Conexa, a software company dedicated to making clinical research more agile, safer, and friendlier for the people who participate. Chris, what are some of the obstacles preventing expanded use of digital biomarkers in clinical trials? Thanks, Angus.
3: Utilizing wearables and sensors for vaccine and drug trials involves more than just selecting cutting-edge digital tools. You need to make sure that new digital biomarkers are collecting valid, reliable, and compliant data. At Conexa, we are focused on building tools that will provide the most meaningful patient data. For more information, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com.
2: It has been a crazy and confusing week in the COVID-19 vaccine world, and it all started in the pre-dawn hours of Monday.
0: AstraZeneca is preparing to apply for FDA emergency use authorization after revealing promising results from its phase three trial. The results show the vaccine is 79.
1: AstraZeneca's two-dose vaccine, which was developed with the University of Oxford, reduced symptomatic disease by 79% and reduced severe COVID-19 and hospitalization by 100%. Just as important, there were no new safety concerns identified in the study, including no risk of blood clots. Remember, a few reports of blood clots in some vaccinated people had led many European nations to pause their vaccine
0: rollouts last week. AstraZeneca's early Monday morning press release was scant on details, but still, most COVID vaccine experts praised that 79% efficacy figure as better than expected, and much needed as another vaccination option, particularly in parts of the world where the vaccine roll out has been slow or non-existent.
1: And then things got really weird. On Tuesday night after midnight, U.S. health officials at the National Institutes of Health issued a statement saying that the AstraZeneca results may have been based on an incomplete view of the efficacy data and based on outdated information.
2: So that stunning statement cast a shadow of doubt over AstraZeneca's
1: COVID-19 vaccine. And
2: Later on Tuesday, Anthony Fauci told Stat and other media outlets that the independent board overseeing the AstraZeneca study was concerned that the results described in that Monday press release were more favorable than what more recent, unseen publicly, data were showing about the efficacy of the vaccine, and that board wrote what Fauci called, quote, a rather harsh note to AstraZeneca cc the NIH.
0: Now, the Washington Post reported that it saw that note, and it said the actual results might show the vaccine to be 69 percent to 74 percent effective, not 79 percent, as the company claimed.
1: Fauci pinned the blame on AstraZeneca, calling it an, quote, unforced error. As you'd expect, AstraZeneca responded with another statement of its own, defending its actions and the efficacy of its vaccine. But the company also admitted that the results issued Monday were based on an interim look at the data from a cutoff point more than a month before, and that it was working to finalize and disclose the results from a final analysis within 48 hours. And so we got those data late on Wednesday night around 9.30 p.m. East Coast time. So I'm going to interrupt here to note that all these announcements are being made in the middle of the night. Has no one ever heard of working hours?
0: Well, I mean, they are the morning hours in the UK, but of course this was a US trial. <laughs> anyway, AstraZeneca said its vaccine was 76% effective in reducing the risk of symptomatic COVID-19, a slight downgrade from the previous 79% efficacy results. The vaccine remained 100% effective against severe disease, although the number of severe cases recorded in the study was small. It was eight in the updated results compared with five in the previous ones.
2: And so after all of that, all of the late night, press releasing and tweeting AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine looks pretty good. A-, a difference in efficacy of 3 percentage points doesn't seem to be that big of a deal in the in the eyes of experts and it's still comfortably in the range where regulators including the FDA will s- seem to say would be highly effective especially considering you know we have by no means gotten a handle on the ongoing pandemic.
0: And so we're left with a ton of questions. Why did AstraZeneca feel the need to rush out an announcement of interim results? Why didn't the company wait a couple days to announce the final results? And why did U.S. scientists make a big and public stink about such a small difference?
1: So in short, this has been One Weird Week.
0: zooming out, this whole AstraZeneca saga really stands out from what has otherwise been a remarkably straightforward vaccine development process here in the. US. Joining us to discuss the big picture is our stat colleague Helen Branswell. Helen, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Happy to be here guys.
1: So Helen, when discussing this AstraZeneca situation, experts consistently reach for the word unprecedented. Is that accurate you know, and how shocking? Was this back and forth compared to the normal process of developing a vaccine?
4: I think it was quite shocking. I don't know that I could go as far as unprecedented. I, I haven't looked for, you know, precedents. But but typically, when um, a, a sponsor of a of an experimental product, whether that's a vaccine or a drug, a, and a DSMB are, are, you know, going back and forth, that happens behind the curtain we don't see that um and you know if there's a d- disagreement between the two on how to read the data they resolve that before anybody goes public with the data so to have this situation where AstraZeneca made their statement and then the DSMB made it known that they had dis- they disagreed with the analysis or the way that that um AstraZeneca had done its analysis by focusing on earlier cases only that was a quite a stunning rebuke it really this kind of stuff doesn't normally happen in in the public eye
2: So it's been a bit of a roller coaster this week, and as we're speaking right now on Thursday morning, and obviously this could change, but it appears that all the alarm was over a 3% relative difference in vaccine efficacy, 79% in AstraZeneca's interim data announced Monday versus 76% from the more up-to-date analysis we got more recently. So who do you think will get the blame for this bizarre news cycle taking place, AstraZeneca for releasing outdated data or the NIH for putting this all on the public record?
4: Um, I don't think it looks good on either party, to be honest, but, um, and, you know, given that it's only three percentage points, you would be tempted to say, Oh, the NIH just looks the worse from this, but there's so much. There's been so much drama around this vaccine, so much uh, uncertainty about the data that the company and Oxford University have generated uh, that, you know, they had a lot of baggage coming into this fight. So I, I, I don't think anybody walks away from this looking particularly great.
0: Helen, we knew that within 48 hours, we were going to get an updated set of results When you saw that the results were only three percentage points different from the original results, did that make you feel better about what might have happened? Or did it make you scratch your head even more uh, about why it happened?
4: I think I would say both uh, in a way, Meg. You know, at the end of the day, we're all fascinated by this fight, the drama But the reality is this is a really important vaccine and the world needs it and the world needs it to work. And what the data show is that it does work. So, you know, this, this trial has, has shown, given us information we really need and it's really good news. Um, so in that respect, that's great. But I would love to know more about why the DSMB two days ago thought that the more accurate figure should have been somewhere between 69 and 74. And why now we're hearing that it's 76. I mean, you know, there's part of the story that we just don't know yet. And I'm really curious about (laughs) what it is. The stateside
1: controversy over the vaccine comes just days after a host of European countries briefly paused its distribution to investigate some rare potential side effects. You know, because this vaccine is being made at a not-for-profit price and it's easier to store um, than many of the others, you know, its inventors at Oxford University have called it, quote, a vaccine for the world. You know, so from the world's perspective, Helen, you know, is this recent news damaging confidence
4: in the vaccine? Certainly it is damaging confidence in the vaccine um, in North America, potentially in Europe, whether, you know, people in India or Vietnam, if Vietnam is going to use this vaccine, I, I'm not certain. A, a lot of countries have have um, given emergency authorizations to this vaccine. Um, whether they're all following this to the same degree that we are, I don't know. But, um, you know, certainly a lot of people, friends of mine, who are not journalists and who are not, you know, reporting on this, have been asking me about this vaccine, because, you know, a lot of my my family and friends are in Canada, and a lot of them anticipate that this will be the vaccine they're going to be offered. And they feel like they don't really know what to believe about it, to be honest.
2: And so, you know, with that floating around there, what should AstraZeneca do to rebuild some of the trust and confidence? Or, Or I guess more accurately, what can they do at this stage?
4: No more drama. You know, <laughs> this vaccine project has been, you know, has had more plot twists and turns than a Agatha Christie novel. I mean, what they need to do is just generate and disseminate, you know, good, reliable data. That's obviously been done. Going forward, uh, they're going to be putting in a application for an emergency use authorization, and the FDA is going to be crunching their raw data, and it will tell the world what it thinks of, you know, how well this vaccine works. And that will be an extraordinarily important step in the process for this vaccine.
0: And speaking of which, you know, the trial that we're talking about was meant to support this application to the FDA, but The vaccine likely won't go before the regulator until a month or two from now, by which point the U.S. might have enough supply of other COVID-19 vaccines to meet its needs. So what do you think the odds are that despite all this contentious debate, AstraZeneca's vaccine never actually gets distributed in the U.S.?
4: I'm not sure that we know at this point. I mean, at some point in time, people are going to have to start to vaccinate children and uh, trials are going to need to be done to test the various vaccines in kids. And it, there is a strong likelihood, I think, that one or two of the vaccines might be more useful in children than others. You know, if they're less reactogenic, for instance, it's parents don't like to see their kids. Having a rough go of it after getting a vaccine. So if you can find one of the vaccines or two of the vaccines that are less reactogenic in children, then those are probably be those will probably be the ones that would be used. Um, so would I shut the door on the possibility that this vaccine might have s- some use in the United States? No. Do I think it's a possibility that it won't be used or won't be used much in the United States? Yeah, I do think that's a possibility. I mean, Just from the point of view of what you just what you said yourself, the U.S. may not need much of this vaccine or any of this vaccine by the time it's available for use here.
2: So speaking of U.S. vaccine distribution, we were quick to reach an average vaccination rate of about 2.5 million doses administered per day, but it seems to have plateaued in, in recent days and weeks. What are the hurdles still standing in the way of rapidly reaching herd immunity in this country?
4: I think a few things. I mean, it's not easy to make an appointment to get a vaccination. You really have to work at it and, um, you know, crowdsource tips, as we've been hearing about in our office discussions. You know, the other thing that is soon going to start to be visible if we're not seeing it yet is just how many people are um Still hesitating about getting vaccinated. I mean, in the early days of the rollout, everybody has been super keen to get vaccine. There's been a, you know, a throng and, and the fact that there was shortage also stimulated more demand. Um, but probably hiding behind all of those people who were getting in line to get vaccine were the people who were thinking, you know, these are new. I want to see how well, it goes, I'll give it some more time, I don't want to be first. Um, as more and more vaccine starts coming out of the pipeline, we're going to get to the point where the people who are super eager eager to be vaccinated will have been vaccinated. And then it's going to be a question of um, moving the people who aren't necessarily opposed, but aren't also motivated to take the trouble to go get a a vaccine or are still a little bit hesitant to try to get them into, you know, into a clinic and, and to get vaccine into their arms. Helen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
1: There's been one character strangely absent from these events this week, and that's Pascal Sorio, AstraZeneca's chief executive, who Damien and Stat colleague Matt Herper described in a profile this week as a swashbuckling brawler from the outskirts of Paris.
0: In the earlier days of the vaccine's development, Sorio was the spokesman for it, even here in the U.S. But since last fall, it's been Rude Dauber, the company's U.S. president, and Mene Pangalos, head of research, that have been made available to reporters.
2: And it's not clear this is a specific communication strategy by AstraZeneca, or if Sorio is simply involved in other things, disputes in the European Union, for example. But it's also the case that the buck stops with the CEO. So for a look at Sorio's tenure leading AstraZeneca and how it found itself in this predicament, our colleague Matt
1: Herper joins us now. Hey, Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Always fun to be here
0: and especially today. So before we get into talking about Sorio himself, Matt, you covered this saga in every gritty detail this week. So what is your impression of what actually happened with the data safety monitoring board and what AstraZeneca did with the results?
3: It sounds like there was a breakdown of process. Usually these monitoring boards work in secret, and it sounds like communication had broken down. And a lot of the statement had a lot to do with Processes were not being followed as much as with the data, which we've seen, didn't change all that much.
2: So pivoting to Sorio himself, Adam nominated him as among the worst biopharma CEOs in 2020, specifically for his handling of the COVID-19 vaccine, first with the safety pause to the trial in the US, and then with Sorio's decision to disclose more information about that on a private investor call than he did to the public. Then there were the original clinical trial results on two different doses of the vaccine, one of which turned out to be born out of a mistake. So I guess, you know, zooming out, how do you look at Soriot's role in all of this? Well,
3: to me, it kind of feels like a lot of what Soriot has done over the course of his time as AstraZeneca CEO, which is to be very brash. And that worked very well, particularly with a bunch of cancer drugs he was developing, and particularly coming from kind of being viewed as one of the least successful R&D companies uh, when he arrived. That hasn't worked well with this vaccine development, where what was really important was to be meticulous, to be careful. And we didn't see these kinds of blowups uh, with any of the other vaccines working with the NIH. This didn't happen with J&J. It didn't happen with Moderna. And uh, so it's, you kind of see this guy where his, his usual way of operating hasn't worked as well
1: in this new situation. So, Matt, there were immediately calls right after the news about the DSMB for AstraZeneca's board to fire Sorio. Uh One of these came from the noted drug industry critic Dr. Peter Bach, another from veteran biotech journalist Luke Timmerman, who predicted that Sorrio wouldn't last the week. Uh, in your years covering this industry, is that a likely outcome? I don't really think so. Uh, I think that this is certainly a mess for Pascal, and it's certainly
3: tarnishing his legacy. But I don't think the board's going to be in a rush to throw him out and bring someone else in, especially given how well everything in the business is working. Um it's certainly not good. but and you know, at the end if at the end of the day the vaccine data look okay, I think that you know that that will which they seem to. They seem to look very good. I think that Pascal survives.
0: Well, along those lines, Matt, you know, this story, of course, captured headlines around the world, but AstraZeneca's stock really only moved a few percentage points in either direction, either on the good news or then the bad news and, you know, on the now, I guess, good news again. Um, So how do you think investors are perceiving this week's events?
3: I think most investors wish AstraZeneca hadn't gotten involved in the vaccine race. The market for COVID-19 boosters which will probably exist in some shape or form, uh, is not likely to be huge with all this competition. Uh, so I don't think investors really care about this because AstraZeneca has said they plan not to make any money on it. The uh, The problem is this is obviously a huge reputational issue for the company. And it's something that AstraZeneca probably took on for that reason, to kind of be seen as, as one of the companies saving the world. And None of this looks good.
2: So, Matt, as you mentioned, you know, investors may view this as a headache and wish perhaps that AstraZeneca never involved itself in the first place. Do you think within AstraZeneca that sentiment might be shared that they, you know, as you mentioned, they embarked upon this process, which promised to be this incredible reputational boost? It hasn't really gone that way. And then I wonder, similarly, their partners at Oxford who actually invented this vaccine, whether they've had thoughts as to whether they kind of backed the right horse when it came to picking a pharmaceutical partner.
3: It's a lot like being on an athletic team, I think. Uh, when when you win, uh, everybody played brilliantly. And when you lose, you start wondering who you're going to point the finger at and say that they messed up. And I'm sure that's what's going on inside AstraZeneca. I'm sure there are a lot of people wondering why they took this on. I'm sure that Pascal is angry at... People in his circle. A lot of these problems are breakdowns in communication at one level, either with the trial or with the rest of the world. You know, I mean, one thing that you hear, uh, kind of not on the record from drug companies over this, is like, "Look, we're we're doing our best and and trying to help." And it's amazing how fast all of these vaccines have been developed. And you're just you're just picking at nits, um, but. There have been a lot of missteps, both from AstraZeneca and also from Oxford. I mean, a lot of some of these early problems. The earlier trials were really designed by Oxford, and uh, the EMA actually calls out in their review documents of those earlier trials that AstraZeneca wasn't involved early enough, and that resulted in in problems with how the data were collected that didn't, in the end, impact uh, the final results or the ability to draw conclusions from those final results.
1: So, Damien, you know, again, you wrote this in-depth profile of Sorio this week. Um, Is there anything in his personality, in his upbringing, in the way he's run AstraZeneca up to this point that could have sort of predicted what happened with the vaccine? I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily predictive, but, uh,
2: you know, he does stand out. I think, you know, as, as Meg mentioned earlier, like the, the buckle of his swash attracts attention. Um, he was sort of a, a drug industry lifer um, in in France, working at a company that was eventually absorbed into Sanofi, et cetera, before going to Genentech and took over AstraZeneca in 2012, which, as Matt mentioned before, the company was not in the greatest straits when it came to productivity on its research and I think where he really made his name was in those early days really betting on AstraZeneca science but more so in 2014 when Pfizer as we all probably recall attempted to uh, merge with AstraZeneca in the name of well I think on tax savings but whatever and it became basically an international incident including various testimonies before parliament and that's where I think Sorio really Made his name as a CEO with with a specific approach, which is to say that he was very brash, both in in rebuffing Pfizer in claiming that if Pfizer bought AstraZeneca, people could literally die, which I, I know didn't sit well with some people. But had a, he had a flair for drama in that process, and then you know maybe getting back to Matt's point about his characteristic brashness he painted a vision of the future of an independent astrazeneca basically saying if pfizer would just go away we could roughly double revenue over the course of the next decade which is a really really bold pronouncement but as matt said because of the strength of some of these cancer drugs that astrazeneca was developing at the time and which were unproven He's come closer to meeting that goal than I think anybody really thought back in 2014. So, you know, that established this profile of Sorio as a guy who kind of shoots from the hip occasionally. And perhaps that is useful when fending off a hostile takeover and it is good for galvanizing um, a workforce that had, was downtrodden when he came in, but it is perhaps not the best way to communicate publicly when you are developing a vaccine that the entire world is tracing the day to day progress of. And so, you know, as to whether it, we could have predicted that AstraZeneca would have troubles that other companies didn't, probably not. But I
1: think it is fair to say that perhaps the the sorio of it all didn't help. And, Meg, you know, you've spent the week uh, as well covering all of this stuff for CNBC. And I wonder, like, do you think anyone comes out of this looking good?
0: I don't think any of the current players look particularly good right now. Right now. It's just very confusing as to, why the you know why AstraZeneca wouldn't have taken the advice of the data safety monitoring board why the data safety monitoring board felt that AstraZeneca was being apparently so misleading they had to write this harsh letter to Dr Fauci which you know I talked with Art Kaplan the bioethicist from NYU about this and he said they knew what they were doing they knew this had to be made public if they copied Dr Fauci and and that's a big move so it makes you wonder do we know everything was there more to this than a 3 percentage point difference in efficacy. Or, I mean, there it's true that even if the point efficacy figure didn't change that much, um, there could be problems with the data nonetheless behind that. But I do think that in the end, there is one party that does come out looking good from this, and that's the FDA, not because of anything they've done yet with the AstraZeneca vaccine, but because this shows the importance of this system in the United States. And it's already been proven with the three other COVID-19 vaccines to show the public all of the data um, in the FDA's own analysis of it in ways that we don't get to see from processes from regulators around the world.
1: Well, we'll probably be talking a lot more about this in the future, so we might want to rename the podcast AstraZeneca. (laughs) WTF.
2: <laughs> Matt, thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke.
1: We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether we should rename this podcast. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
2: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.
0: Hey, recording. Welcome to this week's episode of AstraZeneca WTF, a weekly COVID vaccine podcast from Stat. (laughs) Just kidding. Here we go again.